This episode is supported by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com and by Novara Media. If you want to keep up to date on the Corbyn Project and the latest on UK politics, you should check out NovaraMedia.com. That's N-O-V-A-R-A Media.com. With regular podcasts, articles, and video, Novara Media cover everything from struggles within the Labour Party to queer theory and wrestling. Of course, with a leftist leader inches from power, there has never been a better time to keep up to date with British politics. And unlike any of the UK's corporate or state-run press, Novara Media has consistently covered Corbyn's leadership honestly and objectively, taking seriously the prospect of a leftist-led party achieving state power. Recent guests and contributors span the best of the left, including Paul Mason, Sarah Ahmed, China Mieville, Owen Jones, and Richard Seymour. To keep up to date with everything they do, as I do, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, like the Novara Media Facebook page, and follow Novara Media on Twitter. They're doing really great stuff. It's my go-to podcast for left-wing British politics, and I highly recommend you check them out. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Bernie would have won. It's an impossible to prove, but no doubt quite plausible counterfactual. More than that, it's a rallying cry, and also an inspired bit of trolling. But in the UK, Bernie did sort of win last week. The Labour Party, under left-wing leader Jeremy Corbyn, came far from behind and stripped Tory Prime Minister Theresa May of her majority, forcing her to try to form an alliance with the Democratic Unionist Party, a group of Protestant fundamentalists from Northern Ireland. Labour did not win power, but it came closer to doing so than it has in quite a long while. Labour did so after the very serious people in British punditocracy had confidently predicted that Corbyn would lead Labour into left-wing oblivion, and after Blairite neoliberals in the Parliamentary Labour Party had spent months waging guerrilla warfare against the party's left-wing leadership. There is a lot to unpack here, but I'm going to stop my monologue and introduce my guest, Richard Seymour, because he will do a much better job explaining it all than me. Richard Seymour is an author, most recently of Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, and a founding editor at Salvage. He lives in London, and he's delirious about the election results. Richard Seymour, welcome to The Dig. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, this election is just incredible news for the left, first and foremost in the UK, obviously, but really everywhere, very much including in the US, where it has provided us with a much-needed shot in the arm. Prime Minister Theresa May called these snap elections in a bid to build on the Tory majority um, ahead of Brexit negotiations, believing that Labour after months of media and Blairite attacks on Corbyn, was at a moment of profound weakness. But the opposite turned out to be the case. What happened? Uh, a number of things seem to have happened. Uh, first of all, the uh, Labour Party ran an outstanding campaign uh, and a campaign from the left. They won by defending left positions. This is very important. Usually, if you're running an election campaign, the wisdom is you run from the centre, 
So if you're coming from the left, you move a little bit to the center, you uh, modify a few positions, you moderate your stance, uh, you try not to scare off middle England, so-called uh, middle class voters, swing voters. Um, what they did was they produced a manifesto, um, which was a very important moment in British politics because the manifesto was uh, very much uh, from the left. It was in favor of renationalizations of major utilities, Royal Mail, energy, water, uh, and of course the railways. And these are very popular policies. It was in favor of canceling tuition fees, also a very popular policy. It was in favor of rolling back union rights, very, very good for the trade unions, very good for working class people. Uh, it was in favor of reversing some of the worst of the benefit uh, cuts and benefit sanctions. Um, probably not going as far on that front as uh, many of us would like, but humanizing the system at least. The total effect of the uh, uh, manifesto was to appeal especially to young working class people who have been left out by the labor market because they're more likely to be unemployed, more likely to be precariously employed, more likely to be on low wages, who've been left out by the housing market that's why we need to, to have a big council house building program so people can actually afford to live um, and more likely to be disaffected with the state of the political class. These are people who grew up in the year of the war on terror, the credit crunch, various scandals from the expenses scandal, parliamentarians claiming expenses on the taxpayer, um, to the Hackgate scandal in which uh, a series of corrupt relationships between the big newspaper magnates, especially Rupert Murdoch, and politicians and chiefs of police and magistrates and so on, were revealed. Um, and so there's this up-and-coming uh, generation that uh, is radicalized. Um, and in addition to that, there are traditional Labour voters. So what uh, Jeremy Corbyn did was uh, he appealed to people on a consistently, more or less consistently, left-wing basis, with some exceptions. Um, but also because the uh, the terrain is slightly different during an election campaign, the media can attack you. And indeed, they went absolutely ballistic in attacking Corbyn. But they also have to, at least as the broadcasters, have to give you equal time. And they don't normally do that. And that meant that Corbyn was able to put himself across. Uh, and when he was uh, compared with Theresa May on that terrain, he came across much better. He was much more sincere. Uh, he just says what he thinks, as he always does. He's not the sort of politician to calculate. And when people challenge him or attack him, rather than run scared or be defensive, he tries to persuade them and he tries to explain to them why they should change their mind. And of course, that doesn't make them change their mind, but it reassures everybody else who wants to vote Labour that this is a guy who knows what he's doing. Um, and he's he's a conviction politician, so he's not going to uh, fumble and he's not going to run away. Um, also important was uh, a certain youth culture element surprising uh, this because, I mean, we know that Jeremy Corbyn is good at reaching out to people. Um, he has some odd kind of charisma, a sort of ordinary bloke charisma. But um, the young um, started uh, to engage in a kind of... Um, I don't know how to describe this. There was a, a memes and banter kind of tendency. Uh, so when Jeremy Corbyn early in the campaign appeared at uh, a concert by the Libertines, a very popular rock band, um, he was received rapturously. And he wasn't set, scheduled to be there. He just turned up and they brought him on stage and he gave a speech. 
And they were chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn throughout the rest of the night to the tune of uh, the White Stripes Seven Army Invasion. Um, and wow. that that took off. That became a meme uh, in the whole series of uh, contexts, usually concerts or football games or whatever else it was. Uh, people, young people were chanting this in clubs and bars and on city streets on the night of the election. When they saw the results, young people were filmed chanting, uh, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and the, I mean, I have to say, this is one of the most moving things that I've ever seen. And when they were asked why, um, it was because they said things like, because it's going to ensure that kids have free school meals, because uh, we want a better future. We want a new future for ourselves, uh, because we're sick of the tabloids, the sun uh, telling us what to do. And we're sick of the political establishment, everybody ganging up on him. Um, they saw him as a, an underdog worth fighting for. That's why they came out. And the last thing that I have to mention is an absolutely abysmal campaign by the Conservative Party. Uh, a lot of people overestimated Theresa May, uh, the prime minister, and I was one of them. I thought that she was a very skilled politician. Certainly, she's a skilled careerist. But as a politician, she is appalling. Um, I don't know any other way to put this. She, for example inserted a series of policies into the Conservative manifesto at the behest of a small number of uh, advisors, a clique, um, <clears throat> which were never going to fly and which uh, weren't going to add any votes and some of which you had to U-turn from. So, for example, there was a policy which was to make the elderly pay for social care with the value of their home. Now, the thing about this is it is both a nasty, sadistic and regressive thing to do and an attack on the Tory base. Tory voters are old. Tory voters have houses. You just attacked these two groups in one. It's not uh, only reactionary, but stupid. Reactionary and stupid. Surprising how often they go together. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they had to U-turn from that. But then also there was the thing where uh, in the middle of the campaign, Theresa May announced, we're going to bring back fox hunting. The only people who support that are fox hunters. Everybody else in the country hates it. Nobody wants to have some ritualistic, uh, ancient, feudal <laughs> right of chasing after little foxes just for fun. And it was very popular, obviously, among a small number of rural Tories, but they were going to vote conservative anyway. So this was a pointless declaration. And... You know, I mean, there, it was a whole series of things. Also, Theresa May at a personal level is very shy, very insecure, very bad at doing interpersonal reactions, uh, in, interactions, uh, very bad at uh, interviews, very bad at debates. Every time she's been interviewed, she's come across badly. She ran away from all the debates. She never wanted to debate, Jer to debate Jeremy Corbyn directly. Uh, the only show that she appeared on alongside him was a show called BBC Question Time, where they were both questioned. Hang on, uh, I'm not quite right about that. There are two shows. One was the Battle for the uh, Number Ten, another was BBC Question Time. But essentially, on both programs, they were questioned separately. In one case, by a television inquisitor, and another case, by the audience. So, I mean, and she also did very much worse than Corbyn in both cases. So, a very good campaign for Labour which turned around a huge disadvantage, an exciting series of policies, a moving political movement, a cultural intervention that you couldn't script, and a terrible campaign by the Tories. And underlying all this, a generational divide and a class divide. 
Before we move on, I can you clarify what's going on as we speak? It's Monday. This is going to air tomorrow on Tuesday. But as of now, May is trying to form some sort of alliance with the Democratic Unionist Party. Who are they and why is she having so much trouble cementing a workable deal? Right. Well, as a proddy from Northern Ireland, I can explain the DUP to you. Um, <laughs> the, D- the Democratic Unionist Party um, has its origins in an evangelical fundamentalist Protestant um, uh, politics uh, started by Ian Paisley, the Reverend Ian Paisley, back in the 60s. Um, uh, he started off with paramilitarism. Uh, he started off with a paramilitary group called the Ulster Protestant Volunteers. Um, but he's always been more of a propaganda guy than somebody that's good with a gelignite and the explosives. So he briefly set that aside and uh, focused in 1971 on forming a new party, which was far right wing, um, homophobic, sexist, racist, nationalistic, above all nationalistic and anti-Catholic. Um, and it was to be rooted in the Protestant working class. Um, and it's important to say that Northern Ireland uh, at that time was still overwhelmingly rural. Um, it's probably more rural today than a lot of the UK, um, but it was overwhelmingly rural. The small town um, Protestants uh, tended to go to church. Um, and, you know, so it was uh, more religious than the rest of the country. Um, but above all, it was a colonial sort of mini state. The only reason it existed was so that Britain could still hold on to a little piece of Ireland, the economically profitable piece. So, and this is a pattern throughout history of the settlers really outdoing colonial administrators in the metropole in their uh, vigor and extreme, the vigor of their extremism. Oh, yes. And of course, the Ulster Scots, um, we shouldn't underestimate them. They played a, 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 an interesting role in your country. Um, but, um, yes, the, that, that is a pattern. And so this was, um, uh, the beginnings of that party and they were always very far right wing and several times they were involved with paramilitary organizations. Uh, Ian Paisley was always trying to set up what he called a third force. So he had 15,000 men rally, uh, on a hill, uh, in Northern Ireland, 1981, uh, uh, basically saying, you know, this, this is my militia. And uh, we're going to fight the IRA. And if the British, British security forces try and stop this, we will fight them too. Uh, later on, he set up another organization um, in the mid-1980s. The name of it uh, temporarily escapes me. I'm sure it'll come back to me. But basically, it was to be uh, a similar kind of paramilitary outfit. And it did get involved in gun running. And it did get involved in uh, working alongside the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Defence Association, two major violent paramilitary organisations. So, and you know, the, these uh, the guns that they brought in were used in serious attacks. They themselves were involved in sectarian attacks. Um, in the 1990s, the DUP had close relations with a group called the Loyalist Volunteer Force. Uh, Billy Wright, who was the more extreme element of the Ulster Volunteer Force. Uh, basically, at a time of peace deals, um, when basically the British government and the IRA were trying to come to some sort of agreement, and the UVF and the UDA had put down their weapons to see if this could work. Um, you know, even they were giving up the, uh, the ghost, as it were. Um, the Loyalist Volunteer Force uh, was the only loyalist group, as far as I know, the only loyalist group that was still carrying out sectarian attacks. And they were particularly bloody. Billy Wright, the leader who they worked with, 
ha, was a serial killer of Catholics, has uh, had at least 20 Catholics um, blood on his hands. Um, and uh, they were, of course, the DUP, the last holdout against the Good Friday Agreement, when even the uh, paramilitary affiliated organizations like the Progressive Unionist Party, the Ulster Democratic Party, had signed up to that agreement. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to claim that they're, um, you know, they're, they've always been the same, but there is this common thread. And even today, they still have good relations with the bosses of the UDA and the UVF. They're still a thuggish, um, far-right political organization. They're deeply homophobic, deeply reactionary. Now, the problem for the conservatives in trying to form a coalition with them is that they're reactionary in a very 17th century sense. You know, they believe in a certain kind of social solidarity. They are not free market fundamentalists. They're religious fundamentalists. They're nationalist fundamentalists. Um, but they are not free market fundamentalists. So they support things like the NHS. You know, they support uh, public investment. Um, they claim to defend the Protestant working class um, on a very sectarian, chauvinist and supremacist basis, obviously. That's sort of a, a Northern Irish take on National Front politics, or at least the more recent iterations of National Front politics. Kind of, yeah. I mean, they're not fascist, to be fair, but I mean, they, 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 they've got they're pretty far right and they've got a bloody past. And that's the kind of that's the kind of thing we're talking about. They do have a democratic mandate because, you know, they, they won a majority in this Northern Irish uh, Westminster elections. But um, essentially, uh, they're a difficult proposition. The other thing that's difficult for Theresa May and the Conservatives is this. The Good Friday Agreement stipulates that the British government has to be neutral between the two sides. Um, and the Northern Irish uh, statelet, the mini-state, is organized on a sectarian basis since the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, not an orange chauvinist basis, a sectarian basis, meaning it's split up between two communal blocks. And you have to have uh, representatives from each block in the government, no matter who wins. And there are always arguments uh, within the Northern Irish Assembly over if, for example, a hospital or a school has to close the argument will be it's going to close in your community and not mine. You know, it's this sort of neoliberal race to the bottom structured by ethnic competition. Um, so um, but the basis of it is that they there has to be neutrality on the part of the British government. If Theresa May forms a coalition with the DUP, neutrality is gone. And then there's the whole question of what happens with Brexit and whether there is a hard or a soft border between the north and the south of Ireland. At present, there is a soft border, okay? And that's part of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, but uh, with Brexit, maybe a hard border would come back in. Um, so there's a whole series of issues that are condensed here, and they're having trouble reaching an agreement. In principle, there's uh, some sort of confidence and supply uh, deal worked out, wherein the DUP would vote for the government's uh, budgets, um, vote for the government in cases of confidence, you know, uh, to, to, you know, if there was a no confidence vote, they would support the government, stop it from collapsing. Um, and they would just about get a very small parliamentary majority on that basis. Um, but it's very tricky. Um, it's, and it would actually be a minority government rather than a coalition government. Yeah, it would be, um, it would be a, or I don't know it what you call that. Minority, yeah, it would be, I mean, the, the Tories would be forming a minority government backed up by uh, the DUP. Yes, that's 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 clear. And uh, that support could be withdrawn at any time. And of course, the DUP will extract some 
blood for that, um, including it could be including things like money, which is, you know, I mean, that's not going to be a big deal for the British government to give Northern Ireland a bit more money because Northern Ireland's one of the poorest places in the United Kingdom. But it could also include things like uh, uh, abortion. You know, uh, the Labour Party is committed to uh, legalizing abortion in Northern Ireland where it's still banned. Um, the Tories uh, will presumably back up the unionists on this point, but the unionists, the D Democratic Unionist Party may wish to push further for uh, a national referendum or, or national restrictions on term limits, something like that. There are a whole number of issues on which uh, the DUP could push uh, the politics of this country back very far, purely because they happen to be the kingmakers in this situation. And they're a tiny group of, they have 10 MPs. So where does this leave, I'll leave May and the Tories, she called these snap elections to strengthen her hand ahead of Brexit negotiations. The Brexit negotiations are still on the table, even though May's future is extremely uncertain. How do you think things are going to play out on amongst Tories? Well, you said I could swear, and I have to quote a few things. Um, first of all, uh, <laughs> ITV's um, uh, political editor, Robert Peston, uh, reports Tories saying, we fucking hate her. We can't stand her, but we can't do anything about it. It's totally fucked us. Um, senior Tories are going up and telling Ian Katz, the editor of Newsnight, that uh, we would love to get rid of Theresa May, but we are terrified that we may end up having to have another election. And if we go to the country now, Jeremy Corbyn will win. The Labour Party will win, and they're terrified of that. This is an absolute disaster for them. This is... Um, you know, they did gain votes uh, as they expected to, not as many as they expected to. They did gain votes because the post-Brexit realignment means that they picked up a lot of former UKIP voters. Um, so essentially, UKIP was the hard right pro-Brexit formation. Essentially, it uh, isn't really a party anymore. It's not going to be a factor now that they've actually got what they wanted. The, the, those voters were supposed to go back to the Conservative Party, and I guess about half of them did, and uh, the other half went in various other directions, including the Labour Party. Um, so they did pick up some votes, but they didn't stop Jeremy Corbyn from picking up votes. They didn't stop him from driving up the turnout, um, and they ran a very, very bad campaign. Now, this is going to strengthen the hand of those in the Conservative Party who have always been critical of Theresa May. Theresa May apparently is very, very bad at dealing with uh, people. She's very bad at dealing with her colleagues. I heard about some text messages uh, recently. <laughs> well, I don't know about the text messages, but I can tell you that um, th there are a number of them who hate her, but particularly those who were opposed to Brexit. Now, Theresa May was a Remainer. Uh, she didn't want to leave the European Union. But once she was the leader of the Conservative Party in the aftermath of Brexit, she imitated UKIP's policies, thematics, uh, ideological appeals to the letter. She became a flag-waving nationalist, talking about a red, white and blue Brexit, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and they really dislike her for it. She's talking about a hard Brexit. We're going to leave the single market. We're going to leave the European Court of Justice. Uh, we're going to fundamentally change our whole global orientation. I mean, it's a mad idea and it's an incredibly risky idea for a conservative politician uh, to try to implement. But 
it would be a popular one in the short term because the people who voted uh, for Brexit and the people who want a hard Brexit are, generally speaking, voters on the right who would vote Conservative. So um, this was, um, on her part, a short-term bid to restore the Conservative Party's political dominance, uh, which has been in decline for decades. Um, and in so doing... Uh, to ensure that uh, she has the maximum hand for negotiating. And my guess is that some point down the line, with that kind of mandate, she would have started to make some concessions, she would have started to soften her position, and so on. Um, I still don't think it would have gone well, but that was the idea. But her colleagues now want her to significantly soften the rhetoric. They want her to uh, pull back from... Uh, the, the idea of a hard Brexit. They want her to um, commit to some kind of uh, access to the single market. They want her to uh, make some gestures to the European Union because negotiating with the EU is going to be very hard and she's not in a good place to do that, to carry out those negotiations because she's turned out to be such a poor politician. Um, my sense is that they will get rid of her quite soon, um, notwithstanding the fact that they're frightened they can't keep her on as leader. She is a disaster for them. And every day she stays on worsens their standing in the polls, uh, worsens their crisis, sharpens the antagonisms uh, between the different factions within the party. What they desperately want and need is a unifying figure, somebody who can reassure both wings of the party in terms of Europe. Um, those who are Brexiters, which would be the majority of the base, and the big business uh, aligned uh, pro-Romain faction at the top of the party. And I don't know who they have who can do that. Uh, there, aren't, there isn't an abundance of brains at the top of the Conservative Party at the moment. Um, part of the long-term decline of the Conservative Party has been an organic crisis of its, you know, of its caters, if you want to put it like that, of its um, you know, leading membership. Uh, it hasn't really developed a good leadership in recent years. Um, my the rise of Boris Johnson seems to reflect that reality. Boris Johnson, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he is somebody who, you know, came up through entertainment, um, and he got to where he is by uh, becoming a London mayor on the back of pretending to be a vaguely centre-left Tory, um, which he's not. He's always been, you know, hard-right Thatcherite, and so in the Brexit campaign, he took a position that was very, very pro-Brexit, uh, even though he didn't believe in it personally. And once the result came through, uh, he panicked. Uh, he knew it was an absolute disaster. Um, but he did that so that he could position himself as a future Tory leader. My sense is that um, the Tory grandees just don't want him as leader. People like Michael Hesseltine, um, who are very uh, major figures within the Conservative Party, would um, try to undercut him by any means necessary. Um, George Osborne, former Chancellor, modernizer, who's now editing the Evening Standard in London, um, has been running a, a vicious campaign against Theresa May using the front pages every day since the election. Uh, no doubt he would turn his fire on Boris Johnson too. So I don't know who they've got. They're in a very bad crisis. Um, it was always clear um, that they, the sort of the deep crisis that they've been in for a long time wasn't just going to be turned around overnight, even with a good election result, uh, that their strength was more fragile than it appeared. But 
by God, it, it's collapsed so quickly. Do you see new elections on the horizon? I think the odds favor it. Um, I mean, we can never be sure because the Tories, as I say, they uh, I think they would rather have a new coronation. One person selected to be the Tory leadership candidate, um, twisting arms to make sure nobody else stands um, and then get them in and and ride out the crisis as quickly as possible before going back to the polls. I think they would do anything they could to avoid it. But the problem is they haven't got a majority. They got a minority. And if they pick uh, a leader who can't secure the support of all Tory MPs, then they are going to be facing vote of no confidence fairly soon. Uh, you can bet that Labour um, will be taking every opportunity to hammer them on this issue. They'll, they'll try to have a vote of confidence over anything um, to um, weaken them and bring them down. Um, and the polls... Um, showed that Labour have a majority now. Uh, they're standing at 45% of the polls, 39% supports Theresa May. They would easily win an election on that basis. They would only have needed a 2% swing uh, further towards them in that election uh, in order to win it. There are so many marginals now that they've created, thanks to a successful campaign, that if they campaign a bit more um, in the, say, if an election was called in a few months' time, uh, it's pretty likely that they would win. And in that case... A, a brief a brief definition of what a marginal is for American Sure. Listeners. A marginal is somewhere where the uh, difference between the two parties, uh, whoever happened to be the two parties uh, in that particular constituency, is small enough that it can change between elections. Uh, we might call it a swing, a swing district yeah, in sure, the US. Yeah, sure. It's exactly like that. Um, so there are a number of swing seats more uh, than there were before. I think Labour have created uh, 50 new swing seats, um, which means that they could easily have a majority. On top of that, of course, they've uh, turned their own so-called uh, you know, marginals uh, into safe seats by turning out the vote. So, yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if there wasn't an election, but, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about the Tories is they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. If they don't have an election, they, you know, and if they don't call it um, uh, before it reaches a certain critical mass, the crisis that they're in, then the, the loss could be all the worse. I mean, we could be... Every way forward for them seems entirely untenable, which is... Fantastic. Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's a, it's a joy to watch, given how triumphalist they were when they started this campaign. They were going to crush the saboteurs. This was on the front page of the Daily Mail, the most reactionary newspaper in the United Kingdom, um, talking about how Theresa May was going to crush the saboteurs. Um, you know, they were going for blood. Uh, they thought that they were going to absolutely crush the Labour Party. They thought that they had a 20-point lead or a 25-point lead sometimes, they thought that they were in for um, a huge supermajority and they could do whatever they wanted. And so that partly explains their complacency in terms of drafting policies. You see them now, they're saying they're ditching their manifesto policies. They don't dare try to implement them. They were talking about a number of things, a number of cuts to various kinds of benefits and so on. Um, and they just uh, they, they don't see how they can get away with it. Um, so it's, um, it's, it, it's a very interesting situation. This is your host, Dan Denver. 
It's finally hot out, and the beautiful Rhode Island beaches beckon. But fear not, I'm doing this podcast all summer. If you like the show and listen regularly, please take a moment, if you haven't already, and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and support us with a few bucks a month. Just go to Patreon, search for The Dig, and throw us some cash. We don't paywall any content, and so we depend on listeners to support the left-wing media they consume. No contribution is too small. Though, that said, large contributions are very much appreciated. Thanks, and now back to the show. Shifting tack to, mm-hmm. to labor um, and what's going on inside the party, um, since Corbyn um, was elected party leader off of a groundswell of, of, of youthful left-wing activism, members of his own party, the kind of Blairite establishment wing, have, along with the media in Britain, waged nonstop war against him and this sort of common sense conventional wisdom about what this election was going to do to the Labour Party was proved that Jeremy Corbyn couldn't lead it. Um, that's obviously not what happened. What's the um, – can you lay out a little bit what the dynamics of the fights within the Labour Party were before the election and what they look like now? Okay. So essentially, as soon as Jeremy Corbyn was elected, there were two kinds of reaction. Uh, from the labor right. One was outright disbelief and uh, lashing out and blaming Trotskyist infiltrators and so on. Um, and Trotskyists are probably, I don't know, there's a, maybe a few thousand Trotskyists in this country and most of them aren't in the Labour Party. Um, but they engaged in attempts to purge members, you know, for all sorts of petty excuses. Somebody said something positive about another party on Twitter, therefore they're purged, this kind of thing. Um, they also engaged in a smear campaign. Um, the smarter, harder heads on the right thought, we're going to need to take our time. But even they started to leak fairly ferociously to the press. So there were negative briefings. There was constant uh, pseudo controversies uh, fabricated. Uh, you know, there was stuff about, uh, oh, Corbynites are abusing us on Twitter, you know. Um, which, you know, there's always some uh, assholes on Twitter. Um, they're always... That sounds very familiar to us on the yes, US. Yes, left. I'm sure, the Bernie bros and all that. Well, I mean, there was there was this kind of thing. Um, there was um, an anti-Semitism scandal confected out of basically a handful of cases of, in some cases, genuine uh, anti-Semitism, unacceptable anti-Semitism. And then there was a few cases where there were people who who were anti-Israel and anti-Zionist, but expressed it in a particularly stupid and unpleasant way, uh, just verging on anti-Semitism. And then there were cases of people just saying nothing particularly exceptionable. Um, and, and my feeling about this is when you've got racism in your political party, what you do is you sit down with a person and you argue with them and you try and change their mind. Um, in even the most authoritarian sects that I've been in, you don't just drive people out. But uh, this is what they did. They uh, embarked on an offensive um, and they com- most importantly, they fabricated a national scandal. They made it into a structural problem. Ever since Jeremy Corbyn became leader, we've become host to anti-Semites. And of course, this was linked to his position on Palestine. He's in favor of two states. He's in favor of human rights for Palestine. He was willing to meet with representatives of Hamas and so on um, in order to, you know, like to promote the cause of uh, Gaza and so on. 
Um, so the idea was that since you're uh, since you're attracting all these young uh, left wing members, they're going to be concerned about Palestine. They're going to be uh, critical of Israel. In some cases, they're going to be anti-Zionist. Um, therefore, you're anti-Semitic. Um, and that was uh, used in the press uh, to uh, create a, a sort of period of uh, chaos in the Labour Party. Um, and there were these constant uh, scandals and constant uh, efforts of sabotage. The worst thing they did was in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, when the Conservative Party leadership was in a crisis because they called a referendum, which backfired. They didn't expect it to go the way it did. There was a crisis at the top of the Conservative Party. Labour should have been exploiting it. Labour should have been going on the offensive. Instead, what did they do? You had 172 Labour MPs including members of the shadow cabinet, people to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, who he had graciously included in the shadow cabinet, even though he disagreed with them, and who had been leaking poison against him since day one, uh, organized a coup, trying to get him out. Had a string of resignations, well-timed for the media. They had a, li a, a lineup of uh, party grandees denouncing him, calling on him to do the decent thing. They had meetings where he was subjected to emotional waterboarding to try to get him to step down. Um, luckily, Jeremy Corbyn is a fairly old-fashioned kind of politician who doesn't do things by media or polls and doesn't particularly care uh, what people are saying about him in the media. He understood that his strengths lay in numbers and organization. And as long as the membership was supporting him and as long as the trade unions were supporting him, he was safe in his role. And so he faced them down and they had to have another election and he won it hands down. So... They had a series of attempts to uh, disrupt Corbyn. Then they tried to overthrow him. They failed. And they spent the last few months uh, miserably firing uh, feces in his direction. Um, <laughs> then we had the election, snap election called. Now, uh, in the aftermath of Brexit, Labour's polling uh, had gone very, very low. Because uh, they, were... they were in sort of an untenable situation um, after Brexit because they were... Uh, against it, but not under Corbyn for neoliberal reasons. There was some ambivalence about it. And then afterwards, they were in this awkward position of having opposed Brexit, but not calling for it to be stopped since the referendum had, had, had passed. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that part of it was fair enough. Um, I think that um, Corbyn, you know, he, he could only be honest about this. He wasn't a supporter of the European Union. His position was... Brexit now is going to be worse than staying in at this point. If we leave now, we're going to have a much worse situation. So we should probably vote to stay in. And he got Yanis Varoufakis over uh, to tour, you know, the left wing areas of the country and, you know, talk to um, left wing Eurosceptics and persuade them to stay in, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, by and large, that was successful. They got two thirds of Labour voters to vote for Remain. Um, but... In the aftermath, of course, uh, they, they were never going to defy the result. They were always going to say, that's fair enough. We have to go along with the democratic verdict. I think that uh, they saw some opportunities in it. And as much as leaving the European Union allows them uh, some freedom from a free market set of regulations and laws, which, for example, prevents uh, renationalization of the railway and that kind of thing. But you're right. There was a degree of... Um, indeterminacy. There was a degree of ambiguity about their position. Uh, I think they were very worried about losing votes in various core heartland seats to UKIP, 
um, if they took a stance that was opposed to Brexit. And so they were wary of being too oppositional on this, even though Theresa May was pushing towards a a hard Brexit, a a, a madcap Brexit. So they had a period of time where they, they weren't they weren't driving the narrative and their opposition had been defanged and they were struggling to find a place. But then she calls this snap election and Jeremy Corbyn says, you know what, this election isn't going to be about Brexit. We've already said we are, we agree with uh, the going along with the democratic verdict. We're not going to reverse that. The question is, what sort of country do we want to come out of Brexit? And they ran a campaign on the basis of class issues. Now, the Labour right... Uh, And that includes everybody from the Blairites, you know, the sort of uh, free market modernizers to the old labor right who are much more rooted in the trade unions and much more uh, traditional labor. But they're still very right wing. They're sort of Cold War right wing, anti-communist, that kind of thing. Um, Everybody uh, on that side, uh, you know, poured scorn on labor's electoral chances. Uh, there was a series of resignations of MPs trying to maximize the difficulties and bureaucratic uh, backlog for the party. There was a number of MPs who uh, uh, openly attacked the leadership. John Woodcock MP, uh, uh, one of the more irritating Corbynites, uh, came out and said, I can't encourage anybody to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, so please don't. Meaning that, in effect, he was calling for himself to lose his seat. Uh, because he represented the Labour Party, which was led by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, A number of local MPs, uh, for example, one near me called uh, Joan Ryan, who's a very right-wing MP, um, ran a series of um, mail-outs saying, Jeremy Corbyn has no chance of winning, so therefore it's safe to vote for me. You can vote for me and uh, (laughs) nothing bad will happen. It'll be okay. And I can't imagine anything more designed to put people off, to make them suspicious um, and to demoralize people who actually would quite like to vote for the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. Luckily for her um, and luckily for John Woodcock as well, uh, the Corbyn uh, surge uh, raised the turnout everywhere. Um, only six Labour MPs lost their seats and they gained 30 to make up for them, uh, something like that. Um, and I think probably four of those six were anti-Corbynite MPs with small majorities who were pretty you know, vitriolic about Corbyn um, and probably undermined their own support in that way anyway. Um, but in the aftermath of this result, a number of figures from the Labour right have done the mea culpa. You know, they've come out and said, I didn't expect this to come. I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't see this. Um, some of it has been sincere and some of it has plainly been uh, begrudging. And yeah, absolutely. Some people talking about how, oh, I would love to serve on the shadow cabinet now. Uh, you know, Chuka Amona, um, Stephen Kinnock, both, uh, you know, very harsh anti-Corbynites up to this point suddenly say they want to serve the shadow cabinet. Uh, I I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. They would be leaking poison as soon as they got in there. But this is the sort of changed situation. There are one or two idiots. um, For example, Chris Leslie MP came out uh, and said, well, the result actually isn't good enough. Frankly, we should have been able to beat this government. We should have been able to win the election which just suggests a complete detachment from reality. 
um, not just because Labour was behind in the polls, but because Labour had been in a process of long-term decline. Labour had been losing heartland seats and heartland votes. It had lost Scotland in the last election. The, the core seats um, in the North and the West Midlands uh, risked being lost to the Tories because of the UKIP effect. And, uh, you know, no other leader with, uh, and no other manifesto and no other, no other set of policies could have reversed that situation uh, and put Labour within 2% of actually winning. So, you know, the, the, but nobody's really paying attention to those guys. Those guys look like idiots. So I think that Jared Mc- And has Corbyn really solidified his, his hold on... Yes, yeah, so I was about to say, uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn's in uh, his position for as long as, uh, well, for the moment, as long as he wants to be. Um, and there will be some attacks on the right, but they will be ineffectual. Um, and what's really important is that those in the middle of the party, particularly at the top in the parliamentary Labour Party, the MPs, and even the sort of middling elements in the bureaucracy who you know, would have weighed against Corbyn before. I don't think they're going to buy it now. I think at this point, they are delighted. They're cock-a-hoop with these results. Um, they didn't see it coming, um, but they want to make the most of it. Um, and I think that many of them are people who are disappointed idealists who, you know, have gravitated to the right over the years so, uh, because of defeats. And seeing this now, seeing this monumental chance open up, they're excited and they want to go forward. Um, and I've seen a number of uh, statements along those lines. Uh, so Jeremy Corbyn has uh, persuaded a lot of his critics uh, just by dint of success. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the sh- show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support this show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. I want to quickly go over the situation with the more minor parties, which really support for which really collapsed this election, and the Tory and Labour vote share just, you know, uh, what, I forget. I don't forget what it was, but what was it eighty something? Yeah, percent? something like that. So you mentioned UKIP collapsed basically because they lost their reason for existence because mm-hmm. Brexit passed was approved. Um, the SNP also lost a huge number of seats. I think mostly to the Tories in Scotland. What happened there? Uh, that's one of the most interesting things in the whole election. Uh, it seems uh, that the. Um, the sort of uh, rank-and-file um, conservative voter in Scotland who might have previously been happy enough to support the SNP as a kind of modernizing party, or at least not motivated enough to turn out, came out in big numbers uh, to vote for uh, the conservatives out of opposition to any second referendum, because Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP, was talking about a second independence referendum, and they did not want that to happen. And also... Uh, out of opposition to Jeremy Corbyn and uh, the Labour Party. You see, I think that what's happened here is uh, straightforward polarisation. The centre uh, was crushed. The Liberals did very, very badly, um, as predicted. Um, uh, Nick Clegg, 
former Liberal leader lost his seat. Tim Farron, current Liberal leader, almost lost his seat, just hung on. Um, and the various smaller parties which represent currently a position to the right of the Labour Party, although they didn't before, have uh, sort of uh, been squeezed by that polarisation. Uh, previously, when the Labour Party was pursuing a centre course, the Greens were taking a million votes from them. The SNP took a million votes from them. Plaid Cymru, uh, the Welsh Nationalist Party, took votes from them. Um, and a whole series of local uh, challenges, uh, you know, were able to take votes from them. So um, this election has seen a reversal of those trends. It's also worth saying about Scotland that the Labour Party made a comeback, but not in the same way that it did in England and Wales. Um, Labour gained 100,000 extra votes. That was enough to win it some important seats. Uh, so, for example, it won the psychologically important Glasgow Northeast, which used to be, uh, you know, the, 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 the heartland. You know, this was a, 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 an unstoppable bastion of Labour support until the SNP took it in the last election. So um, Labour did make some resurgence there. But Scottish Labour is the most decrepit, degenerate part of the Labour Party. Utterly right-wing, <laughs> utterly out of touch. They it's Gordon Brown's well, it's party. It's not even Gordon Brown. You know, Gordon Brown, I think, would have the good sense, I hope, would have the good sense to campaign against the Tories. They didn't do that. They campaigned against the Scottish National Party. And the Scottish National Party is a centre-left, well, centre party, um, which, uh, you know, ran on a basically anti-austerity platform, basically civilized politics on immigration, you know. Um, and uh, what do what do the uh, Scottish Labour Party do? They obsess about the nation. They obsess about the British Union. They obsess about the independence question. And they obsess about attacking the SNP. Um, rather than talking about the manifesto, the issues that matter to Scottish working class voters, because let's face it, Scotland uh, has a fairly big working class, traditionally, at least since the 60s, a fairly Labour voting working class. Um, and they didn't even try to reach out and talk to them. Instead, they tried to position themselves as another unionist party. And the Tories were already doing that job very well. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it's interesting uh, because that is the one part of the Labour Party that hasn't been reclaimed by the Corbynites because most of the people to the left of uh, the sort of uh, the Blairites in Scotland are in the SNP or in one of the radical campaigns. They're not in the Labour Party. Um, I don't know whether the result uh, is going to encourage them to join the Labour Party and try and change it or whether they've just given up on it uh, because it's just too far gone. One thing that surprised me about the Scottish National party doing so poorly in these elections is that I thought the conventional wisdom was that Brexit was going to give this the SNP and the independence movement a big shot in the arm because Scots are pro so uh, strongly in favor of staying in, in mm -hmm. the EU. Now, that's what I would have thought, too. Um, I thought at the start of this campaign that the national question was going to be very important. Uh, the national question in terms of Scotland, in terms of the union and in terms of Britain's role in the European Union. Um, and it wasn't. 
it, it wasn't important in the sense that uh, Remain voters broadly didn't vote for a Remain party. So you would have expected a big surge for the Liberal Democrats if people were motivated to have a second referendum to stay in the European Union. Uh, and that just didn't happen. People voted Labour uh, for a party that will soften Brexit, um, but they will still have Brexit. Um, and in Scotland, I think uh, there is, um, you know, about 40, 45 percent who are in favour of independence. It could be more. But part of the problem is that the SNP has sort of tacked a little bit to the right since 2015 when they won that overwhelming victory in Scotland. Um, they've tacked a little bit to the centre right and they've uh, been attacking the Labour Party and they've been attacking Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, you know, sometimes the criticisms are fair enough, but uh, basically they're positioning themselves as, um, you know, in this context, vaguely centre-right. And that doesn't really help them. It doesn't enthuse anybody. And telling people that you want independence on the basis of staying in the European Union, uh, that doesn't really galvanise people either. People don't love the European Union, even if they're against Brexit. It's not because they love the European Union, it's because they don't want the madness um, and the utter filthy racist reaction that comes from Brexit. Um, if you told people that you want independence because we're sick of being ruled by a Westminster establishment that always cuts our services, um, and we're sick of being governed by Tories when we don't vote for them ever, well, that has some purchase, and that had some purchase in 2014. But the SNP's current posture, uh, it just isn't getting anywhere. Um, and this is a surprise in other ways, too, because Nicola Sturgeon is a very good politician and probably uh, currently the best um, of the traditional bourgeois politicians, if I may put it like that. Um, certainly not better than Jeremy Corbyn has proved to be, but certainly of the traditional conventional parliamentarians, uh, clearly the best. Um, uh, and she has just played a very bad hand. Speaking of filthy racist reaction, um, let's talk about the UK media, which was virulently anti-Corbyn in a way that I think would even shock Americans. And we have Fox News over here, yes. obviously. Um can you walk us through the British media landscape and explain the anti-Corbyn propaganda campaign? campaign? Absolutely. Look, um, there are, I think, seven to nine papers. I, I always get this wrong, but most of them are right wing. Uh, they're owned by right wing newspaper magnets. So you've got The Sun and The Times. Uh, the Sun is a tabloid. The Times is a broadsheet. They're both owned by Rupert Murdoch and they're both very right wing. The Sun is populist right wing. The Times is establishment right wing, but basically both very right wing. Um, you've got the Daily Mail and the, and the Daily Express, both owned by different billionaires. I forget uh, who in each case, but uh, I think the Express is owned by a right wing pornographer called Richard Desmond, who also owns a red. Yeah, <laughs> he, he also runs Asian babes, if you want to know, um, and a red top tabloid called The, the Star. Uh, Daily Star. Um, the Telegraph is another right-wing broadsheet. So you've got that faction, which is hysterical in its denunciations of Corbyn, um, pushing a very typical sort of um, scaremongering line of attack, which was basically he's got links to the IRA. Well, where did that come from? It came from Linton Crosby, the Conservative Party's spin doctor, um, who basically is known for 
uh, working strategy of wedge issues. He finds something that will split uh, party su supporters from its leadership. And that's what he did. Personal attack uh, to try and split the, the party base from its leadership um, by saying Jeremy Corbyn's got historic links to the IRA. At a time when terrorism, particularly given the fact that there were two terror attacks in the course of the campaign, uh, is obviously a public concern. Well, um, that's one side of it. And those, by the way, I should just mention, there wasn't the slightest factual basis for this link to the IRA stuff. Um, you could certainly find Jeremy Corbyn supporting Republican prisoners. You could certainly find him opposing human rights violations, um, the trials without jury that took place in Northern Ireland. You could find him supporting a united Ireland. You could find him meeting with Sinn Féin. Probably some of the Sinn Féin representatives he met with would have been at the same time members of the IRA because that's the way uh, the, the system worked then. Um, the the sort of Sinn Féin was the political wing of the IRA, if you like. Um, and, uh, you know, so he was he was concerned with British imperialism and with human rights. But links to the IRA is seriously tendentious um, and designed to scare people. And it did scare a certain layer of people. But I'll come back to that in a moment. There was another wing of the press, which is uh, what I would call the liberal realist wing. Uh, that's uh, the Guardian um, and the Independent um, and perhaps... Um, you could classify the Financial Times in that uh, sort of category, The Economist. I don't know. But essentially, certainly The Guardian, The Observer and The Independent position themselves as liberal newspapers. And they have been attacking Corbyn from day one, not so much because of uh, for right wing issues, but basically saying he's hopeless. He can't do the job. Uh, he's a bearded old fool. Uh, he can't reach out to working class voters. He's not realistic. His ideas are fanatical. His supporters are fanatical. This is particularly damaging for The Guardian uh, because The Guardian is the leftmost uh, newspaper in the United Kingdom. It's not very left wing, but it has some left wing columnists. Um, but uh, in the U.S. in the U.S. especially, the reputation exceeds the reality thanks to Snowden. And oh yes, that. indeed. Well, I mean, and, you know, I mean, they have a, a history of some very good investigative reporting, which has won them a lot of credit. But, uh, uh, you know, those days may be behind them. Um, they uh, have been losing their re readership 10 percent a year, um, the same as the other papers, actually. Um, and they're entering into a crisis. And I think uh, just today it was announced that they were going to shift to a tabloid uh, edition rather than the current Berliner format in order to save money. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're in a serious crisis and that crisis is partly ideological. Um, the majority of their readers were supportive of Jeremy Corbyn while they were running a ferocious uh, attack campaign. Um, and it was just I mean, it was the usual sort of liberal baiting, um, sort of concern trolling uh, stuff like, uh, you know, what's with all the brochialism? You know, why is Jeremy Corbyn not in favor of women? And it's, you know, it's, it didn't actually work with anybody. It didn't persuade anybody, um, particularly given that Jeremy Corbyn has always been supported far more strongly by women than by men. Um, so uh, that's broadly the landscape. On top of that, you have to add the fact that the broadcasters, generally speaking, broadcast news takes its cue from the national press. Um, so given that the national press is over, well, overwhelmingly right wing, and takes its uh, cues from Tory spin doctors, 
because you know they just have to have lunch together and they get the um, you know it's, <laughs> they, this is how it works and uh, they, you end up with the BBC um, and Sky News and ITN News doing the same thing uh, pursuing the same angles and as long as the campaign was on that basis then uh, they were running a very ferocious hate campaign against him trying to you know they're basically saying to him um, things like will you condemn the IRA and Jeremy Corbyn's position was I condemn all the violence all the bombing now that's because if you know about Northern Ireland if you know about its history you also know that the loyalists were pretty violent too in fact they killed more civilians than the IRA did and that the loyalists had the support of the British state um, this was not known at the time or at least not known to everybody it is known now and so his even-handedness you could even say is a little bit mild uh, but nonetheless um, they attacked him for it because if you don't sort of apply a double standard this means that you're an enemy of the people um, and that was the broadcasters they were taking all their cues all their lines from the right-wing press and the right-wing journalists who were um, uh, shit-stirring so um, that's 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 the broad landscape. There's one other point that I have to make, uh, is which is that it didn't work. And one of the reasons it didn't work is because increasingly nobody reads the papers. Now, back in the day, even uh, you know, I don't know when when I first got into politics, um, the majority of every age demographic read a newspaper on a daily basis. Uh, this was the late 1990s. Um, now. If you are 18 to 24, there's only 16% of you who read a paper. Um, I think it's uh, 21% of uh, 25 to 34-year-olds. The only group uh, where as many as half reads a daily paper is over 65s. So those tabloids that were running uh, scare stories and front page attacks and so on, and they were ferocious. You know, uh, they, there was a particularly nasty campaign after the Manchester bombing. Uh, where uh, some lunatic killed uh, a couple of dozen children and young people. At the concert. Yeah, that's right. He went to a concert, uh, Ariana Grande concert, and, uh, you know, it's a typical jihadi thing, punish young people for having fun, um, uh, and, you know, as part of a, some sort of strategy. And uh, uh, there was an immediate sort of fear that this would turn into Islamophobia and that there would be a securitarian crackdown. And Theresa May had troops on the streets and made big statements. And this was her. And these sorts, uh, yeah, these sorts of attacks are typically thought to play to the right wing's benefit for obvious reasons. Yeah, and usually, usually in Britain they would. Except that in this case, yes, the tabloids mounted an attack on Jeremy Corbyn, a uh, pretty nasty one. Uh, the Sun ran a story saying blood on his hands. And uh, basically, it was quoting someone who they said was an ex-IRA man named Sean O'Callaghan, claiming that Corbyn had supported the IRA's murder uh, and made it easier for them to carry out their attacks. Now, Sean O'Callaghan, um, if your listeners don't know, um, is a former uh, Irish spy. He was not. He was an informer within the IRA. He's got a history of making wild claims, most of them unsubstantiated. He smeared uh, a, a Catholic lawyer, Pat Finucane, who was assassinated by the loyalists. He smeared him as an IRA man 
when every uh, major inquiry into that assassination has found that the, no such thing was true. So he was not a reliable source and he didn't provide any evidence for anything he was saying. It was just a nasty smear. And that was that was published just hours after this attack in Manchester. Um, and, uh, you know, you would normally expect that to have a pretty bad effect. Jeremy Corbyn went out and gave a speech uh, which in which he basically said, we have to be brave enough to admit that the war on terror is not working, that it's counterproductive, that, as many experts say, it's actually making it worse because it's giving, uh, it's acting as a recruiting sergeant for these jihadist groups who want to attack us. And on top of that, we also need to look into the uh, connections that we have with Saudi Arabia, which is funding a lot of jihadist movements um, and uh, is the ideological uh, home of a lot of this sort of jihadism. And uh, that got across with the public because, frankly, after the war on terror, the majority opinion uh, is that the war on terror has been totally counterproductive. Um, and the polls showed that the majority agreed but, with them. But center, but center, le- and center, but center left uh, politicians in the U.S. and and in the U.K. and elsewhere are still so terrified to actually criticize and call bullshit on the war on terror. Yeah, well, discourse. Yeah. Well, I think in some cases it's not even. I think in some cases they they outright advocate it because they're aligned to the interests that it promotes. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there is there there has been this terror. Um, this is one of the ways in which uh, terrorism works. The aftermath, the reverberations of terror are, is that it becomes a much more frightened country and a much more frightened discourse. And uh, it bolsters authoritarians and it, it bolsters uh, a kind of, if you like, a political death drive, you know, just a self-destructive spiral. Um, in this case, it didn't happen. The reason it didn't happen in particularly um, is because of the um, the younger generation. If you looked at uh, the sort of voters, especially white men over 50, they were persuaded by the smear campaign. I think that's very clear. Um, younger voters, especially young women, definitely weren't. And uh, this was dramatized on BBC Question Time, which I mentioned um, when uh, there was a big split in the audience between the older men who were basically attacking Jeremy Corbyn for supposed IRA links, but also attacking him for saying that he wouldn't push the button to launch a nuclear strike um, that is against the nuclear genocide of millions of people, population centers. Um, and what yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, well, the interesting thing is, you know, I mean, he was attacked by speaker after speaker until a young woman in the audience says, very politely, I don't understand why so many people are so keen on killing millions of innocent people. And she got the biggest applause of the night. And I think that it exposed the fact that actually for decades there has been this official militarism, this martial culture, which everybody's impressed by. We're all supposed to be hypnotized by the idea that Britain is a global power predicated on violence, predicated on uh, bombing somewhere. And, you know, back in the days of the Falklands War, that might have worked. But today, especially younger people, especially anybody under 45, not likely to be impressed by it. And therefore, it didn't work. It's become all too obvious that the war on terror is only creating more terror and making everyone less safe. And so it's about time that someone who voted against the Iraq war rather than someone who voted for it be considered actually better for our security 
yeah, um, I believe you had those sorts of arguments about Bernie Sanders. Many times. Um, I Before I let you go, I wanted to, we haven't touched on Momentum, the movement that brought Corbyn to power in the Labour Party. And I was hoping you could sort of lay out how they have came about and how they organized and have been so successful. I think a lot of listeners who are organizing out there um, with DSA and other projects on the U.S. left right now would be interested in, in hearing. Okay. Well, look, I mean, first of all, just to clarify, they didn't exist um, until Corbyn had actually won. Um, oh. <laughs> so, but, but to be fair, there were, uh, there were networks of activists, um, people who had been in the Labour Party for a long time, um, you know, and they had survived the locust years of right-wing dominance, and they came out of retirement and they sort of moved into action and they were very effective. There was also an influx of younger and newer uh, enthusiastic supporters. Um, and so uh, after Corbyn won the leadership, his um, effectively his leadership campaign became momentum and was headed by um, uh, a sort of uh, someone who is on the right wing of Corbynism, if I may put it like that, called John Lansman. Um, and uh, he basically sort of cobbled together a coalition um, and uh, they elected a few officers and positions and so on. Predominantly, it was a coalition of uh, different groups on the far left at first because those were the most active. Um, I don't think that was uh, John Lansman's idea at all. I think he wanted a kind of pressure group um, Actually, one of the problems for Momentum has been to decide whether it is um, a sort of uh, a pressure group of uh, sort of like progress, um, which is a pressure group of the right within the Labour Party, or whether it's an activist group aimed at uh, sort of putting people into um, organizing local communities and so on. And it's always had this sort of ambiguity. It certainly has been very good at winning battles for Corbyn within the Labour Party. Uh, it's, it was very good at mobilizing during the attempted coup. In this election campaign, it also did marvelous work. I mean, to their credit, uh, if you looked at the seats where Labour did very well, chances are you'd find momentum campaigners out there every single day, especially in those marginals where they were threatened with losing seats like uh, Hampstead and Kilburn, uh, Ealing Central. Um, they won the seat of Battersea, which was held by a government minister. Uh, they took that off her. Uh, and that was momentum activists who were doing it. And uh, they, you know, they, they, they obviously have a lot of uh, congealed experience and skill in campaigning. I do not think that the organizing model uh, is particularly democratic, frankly. Uh, I think they could do things differently and a lot better. But they have moved. I, I, I understand the basis of it. Essentially, they've moved to an online uh, organizing model. So whereas previously they had branch structure, you know, elected delegates and so on, um, that tends to favor people who are already existing activists. Um, and there are good reasons why you might want to do that. Um, but they they wanted um, what a sort of structure where everybody could vote online. Uh, I don't think that necessarily is more democratic, but uh, I think they felt that it would involve uh, a broader range of people. Um, it certainly doesn't entail more doesn't entail more sub substantive yeah that's the problem uh, that that's exactly why I think that they uh, that it was a mistake and I think um, 
you know, to some extent, uh, there's a, a bunch of people uh, at the top of the organization who are happier, um, you know, with the idea um, that they will sort of determine the strategy. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to dismiss momentum and I'm not here to slag them off. I think they've done a very good job. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm certainly not one to talk. I haven't accomplished what they have. Um, but uh, I, I, I have listened to their critics, the sort of the, the left wing within momentum, who largely came from sort of various far left tendencies. And some of their arguments resonate, make sense. So I think we have to be very careful about moving towards this kind of online style of activism. But that said, when it mattered, they have used social media very well. Um, in this campaign, they got people out on the streets to a very large extent by having, for example, a website called My Nearest Marginal, meaning you can find out where your nearest swing seat is and you can go and join in. You can and go knock on doors. You knock on doors. And that's how, I mean, that uh, I was doing this in Enfield Southgate, one of those uh, constituencies that surprisingly went Labour. It's an affluent North London constituency, but it has a lot of working class voters in it. Uh, and what we did, we just went out and made sure that Labour people voted. Um, and I think that partly, you know, as the name suggests, generates some momentum in itself. Uh, and it's really interesting, actually. One other thing I will say, um, there are a number of um, good people um, at the top of momentum who are also very close to the Corbyn uh, leadership and close to the campaign. I, I think that uh, they might have had something to do with the idea that Jeremy Corbyn should appear uh, at uh, events like the Libertines concert. And if they did, uh, that was a really good move because that was a crucial part of getting Jeremy Corbyn across in youth culture. Um, it started off, uh, it's, it, it went viral as a result of that. So uh, they, they, they know something, you know, they, they have some ideas, uh, they, have, they have some clue of what they're doing. And my uh, sort of personal dilemma at the moment, if you want to know, is uh, uh, A, shall I join the Labour Party? Um, and give up any idea of independence from this phenomenon um, as a commentator. And uh, having done that, will I also join them and uh, see what kind of uh, difference uh, we can make within it? Um, and I think that many, many people are facing that uh, question right now. I know that Labour membership has gone up 150,000 since the election. They now have something like 800,000 members. Um, and God knows we could push it up to a million um, and create a, a massive basis for changing this country. Um, there's so much more that I want to talk about, but we're running out of time. I do have one last critically important question, which is what is up with the people in the strange costumes standing next to candidates on election night? Um, I think uh, I can't be sure about this, but uh, I think you may be referring to the Lord Buckethead guy that was standing next to Theresa May. Um, Corbyn had an oddly dressed yeah. guy behind him yeah, as well. The, 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 there's a party here called the Monster Raving Looney Party, um, and they basically they stand for a joke, and their their job is to satirise the electoral process just by being crazy <laughs> and. Yeah, they usually get uh, a couple of dozen votes or something like that. And in some cases where people are particularly um, contemptuous of the process, then maybe they'll get a few more than a, a few dozen votes. Um, it, it might be a kind of anti-political thing. Um, so that's what that's about. <laughs> um, Richard Seymour, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on.
Richard Seymour is an author, most recently of Corbin, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, and a founding editor of Salvage. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeff Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. And on iTunes, you can leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends. Please make propaganda on Facebook, Twitter, or personally for us. And please do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 